All right, well, it's great to see you guys tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get started. Uh, Just by way of reminder, we are in the third chapter of our workbook titled, You Must Be Born Again, which is found on page 21. So after I pray, that's where we're going to be at. And Lord willing, we'll be able to make our way through this entire section by the conclusion of our time together. So let's pray and ask the Lord's favor tonight. Father, what a joy it is to be here with brothers and sisters in Christ who desire to know you, who desire to magnify you in every aspect of their lives. And Lord, we're so thankful for the forgiveness of sins because we know that though we desire to put you on display in every aspect of our lives, though we desire to be who you've called us to be in Christ, we so often fall short. And we're so thankful, God, that because of Christ's blood covering us and washing us of all of our sin, that we can be right with you, that we can stand before you as if we'd never sinned and as if we'd lived the perfect life of Christ and that you receive us into your kingdom as an adopted son or daughter through faith in Christ. I pray that that is the case for every person here tonight, that they have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ and that they are presenting themselves as a living sacrifice to him. If there be anyone here tonight or listening tonight that does not know you through faith in Christ, I pray that this chapter, which is focusing on the theme of the new birth, the reality of being born again, I pray that tonight's message and the scriptures that we consider would be a means you use to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, that this church would be a a beacon of light in this community, that we would be a a community of faith where your word is preached, where your word is not only known intellectually, but that it is lived out and that we hold one another accountable in love and in accordance with scripture to put your word and all of its authority at the forefront of our lives. Pray now, Lord, that as we turn to this lesson, that you would help us to have boldness to share the insights that you've laid upon our hearts in preparation for this gathering and Father, that if there be any questions or if there be any comments that need to be made tonight by anyone here, I pray that you would lead them by your spirit to make those comments, that this would be a safe place where we can share what we're learning from you. And I pray, God, now that um, you would present through me exactly what you would have to be discussed on my end, uh, that I would speak clearly and uh, that I would be able to address any questions that come about to the best of my ability, guided by your Holy Spirit. May this evening's study be pleasing in your sight, for we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, page 21, you must be born again, covering the entirety of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 36 is where we're going to be at tonight. And the way that I broke down this scripture, because it's so big, is I have six sections that I'll want us to read through in chronological order. So I'll need six volunteers to read those sections. I'll take the first one just to get us started, verses 1 to 6 of John 3. But can I get a volunteer after I read to read verses 7 through 12? 7 through 12. Any volunteers? Hannah will take that. Lisa, you can take 13 to 18 of John 3. Who would like to take verses 19 to 24? Cash, thank you, buddy. Verses 25 to 30? Sigh. And verses 31 to 36? Thank you, Samantha. All right, let me start reading our text and then... 
for those of you who volunteer to read, just fill in right after the person before you finishes reading their assigned verses. So, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How could a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heaven? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses looked up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God has loved the world. Uh, to, thir- to verse 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not in Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who said, who has the bride is the bridegroom, friend of the bridegroom who stands to hear and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, what he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Very good. Thank you for all of those who participated in reading through our text tonight. You'll notice right there at the top of page 21, underneath the heading drawing near, we have a question. And I hope that this got you thinking a little bit because it certainly got me thinking as I contemplated this particular question. It says, if you could go back in history and have a private conversation with Jesus, what is one question you would ask and why? So before I spill the beans on what I wrote down and my explanation for the question that I would like to ask Jesus, if I had that opportunity to do so, I want to hear your thoughts. We know, of course, from the text that we just read that Nicodemus has just sought Jesus in the middle of the night. We don't know the exact time, but it was certainly late. It was dark. And Nicodemus approaches Jesus with these questions, inquiring into the nature of of conversion into the nature of Jesus's authority, his identity, and ultimately of what constitutes salvation. And we're going to look at a little bit of that under the section titled The Context on page 21. But before we get into those weeds, I just want to hear floors open. What would be something that you, if you had the opportunity to take a trip back some 2,000 years and ask Christ anything that has been on your mind or heart, Throughout the totality of your Christian life, what would it be? So what? this is us knowing what we know now, and we get to go back. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just very. I don't know the question. Anything at all? What's something that you just would love to have a definitive explanation to? Something that has really been on your mind or heart for some time that you just don't currently have an answer for. What is the meaning? Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because we know there's groups. We know there's groups that teach that baptism is a part of salvation, or that you, or that baptism is what saves you. Think of the Roman Catholic Church. Baptism removes original sin. So there's groups that have taken that verse amongst others and have abused it throughout the course of church history, so that's definitely a good question to ask. Any other questions? It doesn't have to be in the passage we just read. It could literally be anything. You just want to tell them thank you? Okay. That's certainly important. We, and we can thank him today, of course, through prayer. I'll share mine, um, and this really hits home for me because of some news that my wife and I got uh, earlier today, and we'll pray for it later tonight as we close, but uh, a young boy, well, he's not so young anymore, he was young when I first met him, he's in his early 20s now, and we just got news that he was murdered this past evening 
Um, he struggled with drugs, been in and out of jail, um, grew up in a Christian home, went to one of the best churches that you can go to in America, um, was exposed to the truth from a very young age, and just rejected it all his life. Rejected Christianity, wanted nothing to do with Christianity, walked along his own path, and the end result of the, him doing that was that he had a very short life and a life filled with a lot of sorrow. And he's leaving in his uh, wake a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow for his family to deal with. Um, and I actually wrote this question down before I found out that update today. And that question is, how does a world full of sin, suffering, and evil bring glory to God? How does that happen? We know God is all-knowing. We know that he's decreed everything from before the foundation of the world in order to bring about the supreme revelation of his character and to bring about the supreme glory of his own being. We know he's done all that. We know that's the teaching of scripture. But I would love to know the divine answer to the question, just as clear as day. We've had a lot of theologians throughout church history give what they believe to be the most biblical or theological um, answer to that question in terms of, you know, this is why God has allowed sin, suffering, evil into the world. It's for this reason, this reason, this reason. But I'd love to hear this from Jesus' mouth. Just to have the chance to sit down with him and say, why did this world, why, how is this world the one that brings you the most glory? Why did the sin have to happen? Why does suffering have to happen? Why does evil have to exist? You know, why does murder have to occur? Why does rape have to occur? Why does war have to occur? Famine, all the horrible things that we know in a fallen world. We know God works all things together for the good who love him and for those who he's called according to his purpose. We know Romans eight twenty eight is true. But for me, that would be the question that I would have. And it's, like I said, especially relevant to the update that Bell and I received from a family uh, that we've known for several years now. Um, so anyways, not to get too overly morbid tonight, but that's something that, frankly, for many people, that's the number one reason why they don't come to saving faith in Christ. How could I be a Christian and believe in a God who's all, all good, all knowing, and all powerful, and yet look at the world around us? Look at the atrocities that have happened throughout um, the history of the world. This world is not a good place. How could I believe that there's a good God, right? That's kind of how the logic unfolds for people of that mindset. So that would certainly be a question I would like to ask Christ if I had the opportunity to do so. Any other thoughts on this opening question before we start moving forward a little bit here? I don't, I mean, there's only so much that we can understand as creatures, even in glory, we know we won't, we won't have all, we won't have the fullness of knowledge that God has. We'll know certainly a lot more than we know now. We'll be perfected as creatures, but that's a really deep mystery that we're going to worship Christ for, for all of eternity. But it would be, it'd be cool to hear what he had to say about that. Certainly would be cool to hear what he had to say about that. Any other thoughts? Well, very good. 
the context here. Notice there, right beneath the drawing near section on page 21, we've got a few paragraphs just to kind of give us an overarching 30,000 foot flyover of what's going on in chapter three. And I just think to help get you guys involved in our lesson tonight, I'm going to get some volunteers to read that section. I'll take one volunteer to read that first paragraph um, from the phrase, the beloved down to God's messenger. Would somebody be willing to read that paragraph for us? Okay, Samantha's going to take that. And then a second volunteer to read the rest of that section. It's three really small paragraphs. Somebody wants to take all three of those for us. Thank you, Cash. All right, Samantha, kick us off, and then Cash, you can take it away after Samantha finishes. The beloved and familiar story of Jesus' nighttime encounter with Nicodemus reinforces John's overarching themes that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God, and that he came to offer salvation to people. The former might be described as John's apologetic purpose, the latter his evangelistic purpose. In gently confronting Nicodemus with his need for regeneration, Jesus demonstrated his identity as God's messenger. The chapter may be divided into three sections. One, Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. Two, his discourse on God's plan of salvation. Three, John the Baptist, his last testimony regarding Christ. As John's ministry faded, his ministry moved to the forefront. Despite the fact that John the Baptist received widespread fame in Israel and was generally accepted by the common people of the land, as by those who were social outcasts. His testimony regarding Jesus was rejected, especially by the leaders of Israel. This is a rich passage brimming with practical truth for modern men. Amen. So just really quickly by way of review here, can somebody tell me what the terms evangelism and apologetics mean? Because we've used those terms each of the last several lessons that we've had. I just want to make sure that everybody's tracking with some of these terms that we're throwing around. What is? Let's start with evangelism. What does it mean to practice evangelism or to evangelize somebody? To minister to the lost person. Yeah, to minister to the lost person, right? When we do that, we're sharing what? The gospel. There we go. That's, that's a very simple explanation of the term evangelism. It's to share the gospel with the world, whether it be our family members, our friends, our coworkers, whoever. Just taking the gospel to the lost world. And then what about apologetics? That's that second term that we've seen pop up a few times. What does it mean to do apologetics? That's specifically to unbelievers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and to do what with unbelievers? I mean, like, I don't know how to describe that. Okay. Defend the faith. To defend the faith. Very good. So those are two terms that you'll see used interchangeably throughout our workbook. And it's really at the center of the Gospel of John, evangelism, to share the gospel and apologetics to defend the faith. Um, those are two terms just to commit to memory and get into your Christian vocabulary because they are uh, used frequently, not only in Scripture, but also in conversations about Scripture. Keys to the text, bottom of page 21. This term, I'm guessing if all of you guys have either grown up as a Baptist or you've been a part of a Baptist church for any period of time, you've probably heard this phrase used before. The term born again, I'm going to read what MacArthur notes here at the bottom of page 21. You feel free to follow along with me as I read. And there's actually, before I read that paragraph, I also want to note there's several passages in there. 
And I want us to be able to work through those passages to draw out what MacArthur's noting from Scripture. So um, I'll take 2 Corinthians 5.17. Can I get a volunteer to read Titus 3.5 after I read that passage? Okay, Hannah's going to take Titus 3.5. 1 Peter 1.3. 1 John 2.29. Okay, 1 John 3.9. Greg's going to take it, and then I guess Courtney, you can take First John four seven, First John five one, Cash, First John five four, First John uh, Maverick, First John five four, First John five eighteen, Phoenix, and then John one twelve to thirteen, Martini can take that, and we'll just save those verses. Um, We'll save those verses for the very end. I'm just going to read the whole paragraph, and then in rapid fire, we'll see how MacArthur cites these scriptures to corroborate what he's writing here. Again, the reason why we want to read all of these scripture references in succession is we want to make sure that what MacArthur is saying is actually consistent with the Bible. It doesn't matter how popular or how uh, revered a Bible teacher is, you always want to take their ideas and compare them with the Word of God. So with that in mind, let me read the paragraph, and then um, those who are going to be reading will read after we finish reading through this paragraph. So, born again. MacArthur notes, the phrase born again literally means born from above. It refers to the very core of the human problem, which is the need for spiritual transformation or regeneration produced by the Holy Spirit. New birth is an act of God whereby eternal life is imparted to the believer. John 1, 12 to 13 indicates that being born again also carries the idea to become children of God. The new birth must be appropriated by an act of faith. Okay, so now let's go through these scriptures. I'll start. 2 Corinthians five seventeen says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Titus 3 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Who were born that blood, nor blood. 
Very good. So those passages all explicitly refer to the idea of being born again, being born from above, being regenerated. It's another term that gets thrown interchangeably with the new birth, regeneration. Now, I do have a question for all of us to consider as a group. I understand that the adult Wednesday night class has been working through forerunners of the faith. And if you've studied the Protestant Reformation, any you will probably be familiar with this question I'm about to ask you. It's very important for us to be correct on this question as Protestants, as Southern Baptists. The question is this. Does the new birth or does regeneration happen before or after one comes to faith in Jesus Christ? So does the new birth, does being born from above, does regeneration happen before somebody comes to saving faith or after somebody comes to saving faith? It's a very important question to have uh, clarity on as Protestants and, of course, as Southern Baptists. What do you guys think? Okay, let's, let's do a show of hands. If you think it comes before, the new birth comes before faith, raise your hand. And I'm, I'm raising my hand. Okay? Now, who thinks it comes after? All right, one and the same? Okay. Those are good thoughts. No, it's good. Any other thoughts? All right, so I'll, I'll tell you the, the Protestant answer to this question, uh, and, and it might touch on kind of what Lisa was talking about as well. So historically, Protestants, let me just make sure we're all on the same page. Protestant just refers to anybody who believes that sinners are made right before God through faith alone. The word Protestant comes from the word protest, And they were protesting two things during the period of the Reformation. So think early 1500s, early 16th century. They were protesting, what is the ultimate authority for the church on earth? Is it God's word or is it the magisterium? Is it Christ or is it the Pope? Who's the ultimate authority on earth? Okay, that's one major issue that was being uh, protested about. Second major issue that was being protested about was how are sinners declared right before a holy God? 
Is it faith alone in Christ alone? Or is it faith in Christ plus baptism plus the sacraments plus good works? Um, And of course, if you're here today, if you're part of a Baptist church, you believe, of course, one, that Scripture and Christ, of course, who is, who is Lord of Scripture, is Lord of all of creation. Uh, scripture is the ultimate authority for life and godliness, and Christ is the ultimate authority for the church on earth, not just in heaven, but also the church on, on earth. It's not a pope. It's not a denomination. It's not an institution. It's Christ and his word. That's the ultimate authority. And then secondly, you believe that a sinner is only made right before God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not through baptism. It's not through confessing your sins to a priest. It's not through partaking of the Mass. It's not through um, last rites that take place when somebody's on their deathbed. It's not through any good works that you carry out. It's exclusively and entirely through Jesus Christ alone, through faith in Him and Him alone, that enables a sinner to be made right with the Holy God. And by necessary consequences... In, in those discussions that were happening during the beginning of the 16th century, this gets us back to the question that I asked, the answer to that question by Protestants is that regeneration precedes faith. If you were to summarize the vast majority of the Protestant Reformation, those three words summarize it. Regeneration, or the new birth, precedes, that is, comes before faith. And and here's why they came to that conclusion. We're going to look at some key texts later on tonight, but let me summarize it for you really quickly. Man is born spiritually dead. He does not seek God. He cannot please God in and of himself. He will never seek after God if left to himself. That's the natural spiritual state of sinful man. It's what we've been learning about in our adult Sunday school class uh, from Anthony Hokema's Created in God's Image. So that's the spiritual state of man. He's dead in sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Romans 3, 9 to 18, so on and so forth. But God, being rich in mercy, has caused us to be born again. Ephesians 2, 4 and following. So if man is spiritually dead, he cannot believe. He cannot exercise saving faith. So the new birth, God taking out the heart of stone in a spiritually dead sinner and putting in a heart of flesh. God transforms the spiritually dead sinner into a new creature in order that he may believe. Now to Lisa's point, ordinarily, we don't have regeneration goggles, but ordinarily, when a sinner comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it ordinarily happens simultaneously with the act of regeneration. It could happen later. We, again, we don't know precisely when God does his work of regeneration, And then how long after that it takes before we come to saving faith. So historically, Protestants make a um, maybe not necessarily a temporal distinction, but they make a logical distinction between the act of the new birth and the act of faith. Um, But in any case, if it were to be temporal, it would be that regeneration or the new birth comes first. Grace comes before faith. Right. Yeah. And God's grace in the act of regeneration, being born from above. So that's just something, again, three, three words. I mean, this really, if you're Baptist tonight, if you're Protestant tonight, really, if you're not Roman Catholic, this is your belief on salvation. Regeneration precedes faith. You are born again so that you may believe. Let me simplify it even further. 
Am I born again so I can believe in Jesus Christ? Or do I believe in Jesus Christ so that I can be born again? It's another way of getting to the question here. And of course, if we're spiritually dead, can't exercise saving faith. We must be born again first. So that's, that's a, hopefully get you thinking a little bit. That's going to be really central to what we're talking about tonight. Because the first half of John 3 is talking about this idea of being born again. As MacArthur notes at the bottom of page 21, it's one of the keys to the text. Any questions or comments before we move further? This is a very important part of our lesson tonight, so I wanted to make sure we spent some time on it. Yeah, you, you do not have to be baptized in order to be saved. Correct. Yeah, yeah, no, you do not have to. Just make sure that baptism is not necessary to be saved or to go to heaven. Now, biblically, Christians should get baptized. It, it's a sign that we've been born again. It's something that Christ and the apostles command us to do as Christians. But it is in no way, shape, or form a means of allowing us to be forgiven of our sins and to go to heaven. So, so in other words, we have to read uh, Romans uh, 10, 8 and 9, so that we can be you know, our thanks, right? Yeah, Romans 10, 9, that, that's one of the clearest passages in the New Testament. Uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's exactly right. That's, that's a very simple uh, clear presentation of the gospel, absolutely. Yes, sir. No, that's good. Good questions. No, great follow-up questions. Want to make sure we're all on the same page. Very good. Any other questions, comments? All right, page twenty-two. Last key to the text before we start getting into the discussion questions here. Um, can I get a volunteer? to read the paragraph on eternal life. And there are two scriptures that are included at the very end. It's out of Romans chapter 8 and Philippians 3. I'll take the Romans 8 passage. Can I get a volunteer to read Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21 after somebody reads this paragraph? Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21. All right, Cash, thank you, buddy. And who would like to take the paragraph for us? Right at the top of page 22. All right, thank you, Lisa.
Amen. All right, Romans 8, 19 to 23. Paul writes, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Amen. Thank you for reading. All right, flip over to page 24. We are now in the discussion questions. The discussion questions that I, uh, <laughs> that I did not add to the equation here. So, question one. What facts from Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus lead you to believe that Nicodemus was open to the truth about Jesus? So again, that portion of the text, that extends from verse 1 of chapter 3 really down to verse 21 of chapter 3. So from those verses, what did you see from Nicodemus' interaction with Jesus that showed that he was open to hear Jesus out, to receive truth from Christ? What observations did you make? The fact that he comes to him at all to have a conversation. Amen. Uh, I that's a big deal. Yeah. I think also the fact that like, he started by saying, we're not a true teacher that comes from God. That's right. Like nobody else could do this unless God is with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he clearly noticed that, that there was something different about Jesus, right? He's teaching with authority. He's, he's performing great signs. He must be at least sent from God. He wants to know more about him. What else did you find? Yeah, I would assume that um, there, there was probably just kind of a, I'll have to think about that maybe more, or something to the effect of, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, let me go and think about this deeper. But to your question, I was, I was hoping we'd get there at some point. Did y'all notice that right under the portion, there's three lines where you can include your answer to this question. It says verses to consider, and there's two citations Let's read those together. It's going to answer Lisa's question. I'll take John 19, 38 to 42. Who would like to take John 7, 50 to 52? All right. Yes, sir. Galilee, or you search and see that no prophet arrives out of Galilee. 
All right, so Lisa, really briefly, in regard to those those verses we just read from that passage, the Pharisees are looking for a way to condemn Jesus at this point. They're upset with his teaching and particularly the fact that he's calling them out on their hypocrisy. Um, And Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. He says, now, wait a second now. Um, Why are we condemning this man? What's the issue here? He's starting to stand up for the man, right? Now listen to this, John 19. This is after Christ's crucifixion. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So between this encounter in John 3... The encounter in John 7, Nicodemus is starting to stand up for Jesus. He's starting to question even further, hey, why are we so mad about this guy, right? He's, he's teaching with authority. By this point, he's fed the 5,000. He's done all kinds of great miracles. And now, the very end of John's gospel, Christ has been crucified, and Nicodemus is there helping Joseph of Arimathea tend to his crucified body, lay him in that tomb of which Christ would be resurrected, right? The stone would be rolled away from the entry. So to your question, as the gospel of John is developed, we see that over however long the, the gospel of John spans, there was a gradual working in Nicodemus's heart to where by the end, he's saved. He's, he, he is following Christ. He's willing now to identify with Christ. He's taking his body. He's putting it in the tomb Um, I believe without a shadow of a doubt from these texts that we're going to see Nicodemus in heaven. So Nicodemus got saved gradually thinking through all the things that Jesus had said, maybe listening to what Christ was teaching on numerous occasions. And at some point in that period of time, he came to salvation. So I love how John, again, very subtly, he's not making... That big of a deal of it. He just kind of slides it in there. Look at what Nicodemus is like middle of the Gospel of John. Now let's consider him at the very end. It's pretty cool to see, I think, if you trace it through the entire Gospel account. So I would say, though we don't necessarily see a conversion there, we see seeds planted and we see salvation at the end of the Gospel. Any other observations for about Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus? Been a scoffer, sarcastic, you know, throwing out just loaded questions. Absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty much everything that I noted. I had five observations. Um, I don't see any here that I um, wrote that hasn't already been said, but those are really good insights. Does anyone have any others before we move on to the next question?
Okay. Well, number two, and this gets us back into this idea of regeneration, this idea of being born from above. Question two, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or you must be born from above. What does this concept mean? How would you explain it in your own words? So by show of hands, who did the homework for this week? Because I'm not going to put anybody here on the spot. Lisa, did you did you have a answer? I do have an answer. Okay. Yeah, that's good. What did you put, Samantha? Did you say you had an answer? answer? You must have an honest encounter with salvation that produces the fruit of the Spirit. Hmm. You can't ask to be born. That, that's a right that's given to you. It's hmm. out of your control. Right. Isn't it brilliant how uh, Nicodemus, his mind's working when Jesus tells him that you must be born again. He's like, now wait a second now. You telling me that I got to crawl back into my mother's womb to be born a second time? Like, what are you saying here? Well, my friends, that's the genius of Christ's teaching. Just as you had nothing to do with your earthly physical birth, so also you had nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It was God's sovereign, amazing grace, freely lavished to you. Remember that text, John 1, 12 to 13? Not born of the will of man nor of the flesh, but it was to those born of the will of God that he gave the right to be known as his children. It's wonderful. I wrote down, um, and I, I figured I had to include John MacArthur's definition as well. So I'll, I'll read you mine, and then I'll read you MacArthur's. Um, we are using his curriculum, after all. I wrote, to be born again is to be transformed from spiritual deadness to spiritual life through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's my, my um, definition. And then MacArthur, in his Biblical Doctrine textbook, page 936, he writes this, Regeneration, being born again, is the work of the Holy Spirit in creating a new life in the sinful person by which he repents and comes to believe in Jesus Christ. So I think all of those are really hitting on all the same realities. It's a work of God, right? God's the one who brings about the new birth. It entails repentance and faith, and the evidence of the new birth can be seen in your life. I heard fruit of the Spirit. Um, you know, that, I think Samantha and Lisa said that in some way, shape, or form. But really, guys, if, if you take anything away from tonight regarding the new birth, just recognize that it's, it's God's grace that is... God's grace is what brought about the new birth. That is the source of your salvation. It is the grace of God. If you take away anything from tonight, take that away. God, being rich in mercy and grace, brought you from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. Well, number three. What was John the Baptist's attitude as Jesus became more prominent and popular, and how did his followers react to these developments? So a two-part question, and again, uh, just so we're clear on where this is documented, if you start in verse 22 and go on at least to verse 30, that's really the chunk of text that correlates to this question. 
But what did you see from John the Baptist here? Verse 22 to 30. Oh, there you go. What do you, what do you, what do you see there, Nick? Amen. Mm. That's right. It's how we get unity too, right? From, from your sermon Sunday. If every Christian had that mindset, that it's not about me, it's about the glory of God and the good of my fellow believers, you'd have unity. You wouldn't have issues and squabbles in the church. You wouldn't have issues and squabbles in your relationship. Shoot. Not that we could ever do this, but take God out of the equation. If every person just took that approach to life, the world would be a better place. I mean, that's just real good, practical wisdom there. Put others before yourself. Consider their well-being above yourself. We know, of course, that apart from being a believer, nobody can truly do that. But it's good, practical wisdom nonetheless. What else did we see from John the Baptist's attitude? No, that's that's I think that's the main two humility and he knew God had a specific purpose for my life. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. I've now fulfilled it right up to the you know, John's last old covenant prophet right so the new covenant's about to come in christ's blood i've done my part i've fulfilled the scriptures by the grace of god and now it's time for christ to do his thing he's going to live a perfect life he's going to die on the cross and bear god's wrath on behalf of every person who will ever be saved he's going to be raised victoriously from the grave he's going to ascend into the kingdom of heaven now it's about jesus it's his time and god's plan mm-hmm. yeah Amen. And I just think about this, you know, regarding the followers, um, you know, John, he was excited. What were the followers like? That's a good segue into the second part of the question. Were they excited too? Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's you're exactly right. She was like, they're questioning is what she was saying. No, I think, I think it's exactly right. I think it's jealousy. Um, I think it's man's pride. You know, um, if you notice verse 26, it says that his disciples came to John the Baptist and said, hey, look, Jesus is baptizing and everybody's coming to him. Well, we know from the very beginning of John 4 that Jesus never baptized anybody. So not only do you have a misrepresentation of Christ in the midst of their jealousy, um, well, excuse me, you have, a you have a misrepresentation of Christ in the midst of their jealousy. So I think that it's, it's a testimony or a picture to how we can be sometimes, right? Like if we get jealous or we get proud over somebody else's success or they're, they're growing in their popularity and influence and, and, and it's not us or it's not our guy that we're behind, we can have a tendency to get jealous. And sometimes in our jealousy, we can misrepresent the other person and, and make them out to be the villain or the enemy I see a lot of that here from John the Baptist's disciples. And I just, I just think they had a lapse of, of sin and confusion because John the Baptist had told them, I'm sure, 
He Remember, beginning of the Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was clear. It's about Jesus, not about me. I'm the forerunner. And I just think these, these people, they're just like you and me. They're sinners. They had a lapse into sin, lapse maybe into pride, jealousy. And we see that a little bit here. But John the Baptist being their mentor, he was able to say, hey, no, 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 no. It's not about me. I must decrease so Christ can increase. I'm like the best man at the wedding. Be overwhelmed with joy about what's happening here. This is what it's supposed to have been all about. It's my purpose as the forerunner. That's my thoughts anyways on that question. Anyone else have any thoughts they wanted to share before we move on? That was profound, Jill. Thank you. Well, um, going deeper, middle of page 25. It says, In the Old Testament, the children of Israel had hard hearts and rebelled against God many times. Read Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 28, for what God promised to give them. Now, um, I need somebody to read that text, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 28. Martina's is going to read that. And let me just give you the historical context of this passage. At this point in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is with the nation of Israel. And Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel and Jeremiah. He was a little bit younger than Jeremiah, I think about 20 years younger. But Ezekiel is prophesying about how God is going to restore Israel after being in Babylonian captivity. So um, that's what's going on when we find these words written in Ezekiel 36. This is a promise of hope in the midst of a very difficult time for the nation of Israel. Does anyone know how long they were in captivity in Babylon? 70 70 years. That's exactly right. So 70 years. That's an entire lifetime for some people. So that, this, is, this is God, through the prophet Ezekiel, saying, hey, there's hope. There is going to be restoration. So, Martina, whenever you're ready, read that text, and then we'll address question four, which is directly associated with this passage. Amen. Thank you for reading that. Now, question four, against the backdrop of that passage. How does the message from Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28, compare with what Jesus said to Nicodemus about the need for regeneration, which is internal spiritual transformation? So I gave you the historical context of the passage. Now think spiritual. What, what is this passage, if we apply it spiritually, what is this saying about the new birth or the need for the new birth, the need for regeneration? What do you see in the text? If you, and let me just say this too while you're thinking. If you, if you connect the dots here between this passage in Ezekiel and what the New Testament teaches about regeneration, every time you think about this text, you're going to think about this beautiful um, illustration that Ezekiel is conveying. 
It's very, very vivid about what happened to me and to you when we got saved. So think spiritually. beautiful yeah so so i mean just walk through each of those verses verse 25 this idea of cleansing um what happens when we come to faith in jesus what do we think about think second corinthians 5 21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of god in christ so when i believe in jesus what happens to my sin it's gone, paid for in full, it's washed away. And then what do I receive in return? What do I get as a gift? I get forgiveness, and then what else do I get though? Not just forgiveness, salvation, but I get righteousness. I get perfect righteousness gifted to me through faith. So when God sees me, He doesn't just see a blank slate. He doesn't just see no more sin. He sees Christ's righteousness that covers the believer. I've, so when you're cleansed, verse 25, when you're cleansed of your sin, you're forgiven of all sins, past, present, future. But you also receive the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have a positive righteousness through faith. Verse 26. Now, here's regeneration. The heart of stone is taken away. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 and following. When you were an unbeliever, that was your heart. That was my heart. It was a heart of stone. We didn't seek God. We didn't want anything to do with God. We were living for ourselves or we were playing the game of religion. However that looks in our rebellion to God, we had a heart of stone. And God, being rich in mercy and grace, He took out that heart of stone and He gave you a new heart. And what is the results of that new heart? Verse 27, obedience to God's commandments. Submission to the Lordship of the Triune God. Nick preaches on that just about every week. Sovereignty of God. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, and, if, and my friends, if you look at the entirety of the Old Testament, this is the theme of God. God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. He formed the nation of Israel. He does it over and over and over and over and over again. God on display throughout the Old Testament, um, which, of course, is where Ezekiel is found. So what a great picture of the absolute sovereignty of God. Um, 
Does anyone have, I know we've talked a lot about it, but does anyone have any questions so far about regeneration, the new birth? Everyone tracking so far? I know it's a lot of new stuff too, so maybe you don't even have any questions yet if this is new. You're just kind of like, okay, trying to, you know, piece all this together. That's totally fine. Um, but if you ever do have a question, please ask me during the lesson or after, or ask Nick. I'd be more than happy to help you understand this better if, if you have a need to. But um, number five, another Old Testament passage that we see alluded to directly in John chapter 3. I'll read the text. It says, read Numbers 21 verses 5 to 9. And here's the two questions. Why did Jesus mention what's described in this passage? And how does it compare to his death? So let me read the passage in Numbers. And then we can answer these questions. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 5. The people of Israel spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people in Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man... When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. All right, that's the Old Testament passage. Now I want you to consider John 3, 14 and 15. I'll read it again just so it's fresh in our minds. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, First part of the question, why do you think Jesus mentioned that Old Testament event regarding salvation? Hannah? It alludes to how he, like, salvation comes to him. Like, the same way that, that they had to like, look at the serpent, we have to look to Christ and believe in him. That's exactly right. Did you all hear that? In the exact same way that the Israelites looked to that bronze serpent, erected on that standard for all to see. When they looked to that serpent after being bit, they were saved. They were delivered. They were rescued. It's the same for us when we look at Christ erected on that cross some 2,000 years ago. So by faith, when we believe in Jesus' work on the cross, we're saved, we're delivered, we're rescued from God's wrath. So it's a direct connection. What Jesus is saying there is he's saying, hey, listen, guys, salvation. Nicodemus, you want to know how salvation works? Let me show you how it worked at a very practical level in the physical realm back in Old Testament Israel. Just as those Israelites were saved from physical death by looking to that bronze serpent on the standard, so also can you be saved from spiritual death if you look to the Son of Man who's going to be lifted up on the cross. Same way. Faith is the channel. It's the means through which God saves sinners. 
just like it was the way in which God saved the Israelites from those fiery serpents in the wilderness. Do you all see the connection there? It's really a beautiful picture. And Hannah stole it, so we aren't going to be able to talk much more about that. She said the exact answer for us. So we'll move on to question six now. Almost done. really good, Samantha. Thank you for sharing that. Did you guys hear that? God was so gracious. He provided them with manna. Wasn't enough. So he, he, had, to, he had to bring some, um, some consequences, some judgment in order to get the Israelites awakened, as it were. Get their eyes focused back on the grace of God and the provision of God. It's the same with us spiritually. God provides the law. He provides us with a guide, a tutor, as Paul says in Galatians 3. And yet we rebel against it. We're ungrateful for it. So God, of course, sends his son to obey the law in our place and to bear the full penalty that comes with disobeying the law in the place of us who would believe upon him. Really, really good connection, Samantha. I appreciate you sharing that. Okay, question six. This is a very practical question here. And this gets to the heart of, of saving faith. According to John 3, what are the consequences or the outcome of sincere belief in Jesus? What are the consequences or the outcome of saving faith in Christ? That's what MacArthur is asking us in question 6. And you'll notice there, there are five scriptures cited. Let's read them again. Keep them at the forefront of our mind. And then we will answer this. I'll take verse 12. Who wants to take verse 13? All right, you take verse 13, Sai. You can take verse 16. You can take verse 18. Who wants to take verse 36? All right, perfect. I'll take 12 right now. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Very good. So I made four observations from those verses, but there are certainly probably many more. What do you guys see there from those verses? What are some outcomes or some consequences of saving faith? Yeah, very clearly, right? If you believe in Jesus, you're going to have everlasting life. And let me just say it this way. Um, it's everlasting life in heaven. As we know from Scripture, you and I, 
Everybody who's ever lived is going to have everlasting life. The question is, where are you going to have everlasting life? Is it going to be everlasting life in the lake of fire or everlasting life with God, the holy angels and the redeemed and the new heavens and the new earth? So everlasting life in heaven with God and his people and his holy angels. That is the most central consequence of saving faith. That's the most central outcome of saving faith. What else do we see here? Transformed life. Obedience to Scripture. What else comes from it, from these passages? So I put verse 12. If you believe in Christ, you will understand heavenly realities. You ever notice that if an unbeliever tries to read Scripture, you know, they can, they might be able to read the words on the page, and they might have a shallow, superficial understanding of Scripture, but the more deeper truth of God, they're just not going to make any sense. I've heard it said when I was doing street evangelism on a college campus one time, and I heard somebody say, you know, the Bible's just a bunch of riddles. I don't understand any of it. And, you know, I think that's a really good way of explaining how the unbeliever thinks regarding spiritual truth. And Jesus is saying in verse 12, you know, Nicodemus... You know, you don't even understand these earthly illustrations that I'm using here. How in the world are you going to believe heavenly things? How are you going to believe eternal realities unless you're born again? I think that's, that's a consequence. When you get saved, 1 Corinthians 2, by the work of the Holy Spirit, Romans 12 also, your mind begins to be renewed. You begin to see clearly, Nick says, illumination and sanctification, two works of the Holy Spirit that occur and a believer instantaneously. The word of God comes to life. The light comes on. Sanctification. You begin to walk in obedience to the truths of Scripture. Uh, verse 13. If you come to faith in Christ, you're going to recognize the identity of the only mediator between God and man. Notice Jesus. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. You know, until you come to faith in Christ, you're going to have all kinds of different thoughts about how to have eternal life. You may reject the concept of eternal life because you're an atheist. You may think it's works-based if you're an adherent to a different religion. Um, there's all kinds of different thoughts that, you, that an unbeliever can have about salvation. But if you come to faith in Christ, you're going to recognize it's only Jesus. It's only the Son of Man who's descended from heaven. It's the only way I can be saved. We talked about everlasting life in heaven. And then, of course, verses 18 and 36. You're going to escape God's judgment for your sins if you come to faith in Christ. That's the negative side of salvation. Positive side, you get to spend eternal life with God in heaven. Negative side of eternal life, other side of the coin. God's wrath for your sin, it was satisfied. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. That is the beauty of and the glory of our salvation. Um, those are outcomes of our salvation. Okay, truth for today. Who would like to read that paragraph for us on page 26? Middle of page 26. Saw your hand went up. Go ahead and take it, buddy. Live a spiritual life. No amount of love, care, and words of 
spiritually dead person is alienated from God, and therefore alienated from life. He has no captive capacity to respond as a As the great Scottish commander John Eddy said, it is a seat of living. It is a case of death walking. Men apart from God are spiritual zombies. The walking dead who do not know they are dead. They go through the motions of life, but they do not possess it. Above all else, a dead person needs to be made alive. That which is salvation gives. Spiritual life. When we became Christians, we were no longer alienated from the life of God. We became spiritually alive through union with the death and resurrection of Christ, and thereby, for the first time, became sensitive to God. MacArthur always has a way with words. <laughs> uh, the unbeliever is a spiritual zombie. They are a they are a walking dead person, and they have no capacity. To please God or respond to him. Does anyone know, just bonus question, what, what is MacArthur describing here? What doctrine teaches this truth that the natural sinful man um, has been corrupted with sin in every faculty of their being? They can't seek God. They have no capacity to know God. They're spiritually dead. Total depravity. That's right, Hannah. And let me ask you this. Why do we need to have this truth right to really understand fully the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we got to see man as totally corrupt with sin? Not just sick, not just a little bad, not just the product of his environment, but at the core, utterly and spiritually dead. Why is that so important to the gospel? We can only rightly see Jesus and, and how much we need him if we cease like ourselves that way. Mm. We cannot live apart from him. That's right. We can't live apart from Christ. We can't have eternal life or forgiveness of sins apart from Christ. We can't believe apart from God's grace, shedding new life into our spiritually dead soul. Um, It was well said, Stephen Lawson, um, he's a pretty well-known preacher in our day. He said uh, he was in seminary. R.C. Sproul, uh, great theologian of the past century, he was uh, the professor in this setting, and he asked the class, what can a dead man do? And somebody in the very back of the room said, stink. And that's about all that a dead person can do. There is nothing that a dead man can do spiritually. Um, well, physically, obviously. Um, but spiritually, which is what we're talking about here, we can't do anything spiritually pleasing to God. Uh, we just stink, spiritually speaking, um, if we can use that illustration. So as Hannah said, and, and as we've talked about many times tonight, if we're going to understand the, the riches of God's grace in the gospel, we've got to first see our need for the grace of God, our total need for spiritual rebirth. Can I read Ephesians 2? Go, brother. Do it.
but God, mm. being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Mm. Mm. And raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Amen. 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 That's salvation. Well, number eight, and I think this is going to be where we land the plane because question nine is largely a reiteration of a previous question on John the Baptist. So we're going to land the plane with question eight tonight. What practical insights into evangelism can we glean from Jesus's encounter with Nicodemus? And think, let's think about our local church here. How should FBC Inez or whatever local church you're a part of, if you're not a, a, a regular attender or member of FBC Inez, how should our local church be marked by evangelism? How should our personal lives be marked by evangelism as we see evidence by Jesus' approach to evangelizing Nicodemus? I think I have four, maybe five, um, but I'll wait and see what you guys have. Recognizing that, like when I think of evangelism, I think of like just laying out the gospel for somebody. But I don't really think of like them asking me questions mm. and me answering questions about what they might already know. And so I think for me personally, I see like it's okay to let them ask questions. Oh, for it's sure. It's okay to, for it not to look exactly like you think it will look, you know? Amen. Well, maybe we can do some street evangelism at Victoria College this semester, and we can, we can put into practice some of these uh, Q&A um, um, exchanges that we see here modeled between Jesus and Nicodemus. That's good, Hannah. Any other thoughts on evangelism? You know, when we get to practice, you know, this is the so what. Uh, I, love, I love how uh, – I'll, I'll quote Steve Lawson again um, – he talked about when he was in seminary, he'd be up there preaching a sermon and uh, R.C. Sproul would sit in the front row and he'd have a little placard and he'd hold it up and it would just say, so what? And he'd have it up there. And his point was, take this theology, take this truth and apply it to my life. Show the common man how we should be impacted by the deep truth of God. And I think for me, here's just some thoughts for you guys. Again, this is not the final say. But maybe this is a good place for us to start. I, I tried to cite scriptures to back up what I said just from this in exchange with Nicodemus. First, practical insight. Evangelism must always be done with the recognition that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Verse 3, verses 5 to 8. Jesus, over and over and over again, he tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And then he talks about, he likens the new birth to, so I don't mess this up, he likens it to um, being born of water and the spirit. 
He likens it to also wind blowing where it wishes. And he's saying, hey, this is not something that you can just conjure up in and of yourself. This has to be God doing the work. God is sovereign in salvation. When we evangelize, we have a fundamental belief and conviction and contentment in the absolute sovereignty of God. The results are not in our hands. We go faithfully, share the gospel uh, earnestly, zealously engage with who we're evangelizing, but we're not out there to save anybody. God's the one who's going to save somebody. That, that was a relief for me in my personal relation with Christianity. Mm. That I am not responsible to convince the whole world to, to be saved. That's right. right. Amen. No, very important. Um, number, or I'll, I'll say this really quickly because I, I feel led to say this because this is, this is something that I think many Christians struggle with. When I first started preaching in college, um, Billy Graham was the first guy that I ever listened to. I, lo- you know, I believe Billy Graham um, shared the gospel faithfully for the vast majority of his life. Towards the end of his life, he he got a little off base, and you know I, I trust the Lord with all of those details. But um, when Billy Graham was really firing on all cylinders, he unfortunately he did a lot of things well in sharing the gospel. But unfortunately, he stressed decisions. He wanted people to respond with altar calls, raising of the hand, so on and so forth. And what that created across much of American evangelicalism is this idea that. You're only effective in sharing the gospel if you get people to respond. So when I would share the gospel, um, I would always do an altar call or, hey, if, you're, if you haven't trusted in Christ but you'd like to do so, raise your hand. And I would, I would judge my effectiveness as a preacher based on how many hands I had raised that night. And my friends, when there wasn't many hands or any hands raised, I mean, I'd be, I'd be in tears. After, like, I'd go back to my dorm and I'd be in tears because I thought I failed. I clearly did not preach a good sermon if people did not respond in faith. And my friends, there's a lot of Christians to this day, and and this has been the case for really the past 70 to 100 years since the revivalism that Billy Graham facilitated and others, uh, Billy Sunday, Charles Finney, other figures from the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries and beyond. There's this idea that evangelism effectiveness is tethered to responses. And as Nick said, and as I can attest to, that weighs a whole lot on you, and it's just not biblical. We're not accountable to get decisions. We're accountable to give the gospel faithfully, and God will handle all the outcome. Yes, Pastor. Dedication. Okay. Well, what that has for us, what does that even mean? Rededicate your life. That is another decision that we have. Man has made. 
know, that box is not on there. Um, but that, you know, that is just something that we have done that so much and instilled that. And that is something that's, that's what I talk about, and that's what I'm trying to talk about. When I talk about our ending of church history and the ending that we have been in has been this check the box decision and we count that. And that is how you determine your spiritual effectiveness or where you're at as a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if all the people, I, and I know of, I think of two churches, uh, one that one I surrendered preaching in Union City, Tennessee, the one I was, uh, that we grew up in there in Missouri, if all of those people that had been baptized in those two churches, if they all showed up on the same day, they would have services for 24 hours to be <laughs> yeah. those two buildings. That's right. I mean, I'm talking hundreds of people, and that is, uh, but we, they've been presented a gospel that is saying this prayer, mm-hmm. and that is a ridiculous, un, that, that is heretical thing. Yes. Amen. Well, number two is a good dovetail from that, brother. At least, uh, I, I hope it is. Don't compromise or sugarcoat spiritual truth under any circumstances. Even if the person being evangelized doesn't fully understand, the evangelist must always be tr- uh, faithful to the truth of Scripture. That's Jesus the whole time. Um, he is fully concerned with truth, accuracy. He's not trying to water down the message to get Nicodemus to make a decision. Throughout his whole ministry in the Gospels, Jesus, look at John 6, we'll get there eventually in the study, but he's got over 5,000 people that he just fed, and then he starts preaching hard truth to them, and everybody leaves but the 12, one of whom was Judas. And if, if, if most people today were to write a book on church growth and evangelism success, Jesus' own approach to evangelism would never be in that book. Because Jesus was concerned with sharing truth regardless of the outcome. He was faithful to God's truth. But number three, this is important. Even when proclaiming the truth of Scripture, illustrations and clarifying statements are useful and necessary. Jesus did a lot of illustrating in his teaching. He taught in parables. He provided illustrations to Nicodemus. As Hannah noted, there was some back and forth. Jesus didn't just drop the hammer on truth and say, hey, God's sovereign. I'm not going to try to have somebody respond favorably. He shared the truth fully and faithfully. But he also did so in a way that was understanding. He tried to use illustrations from the everyday world. He tried to pull references from the Old Testament to show the religious leaders that he's not teaching anything that hadn't already been affirmed in the Old Testament. So when we do evangelism as individuals or as a church, we trust in the sovereignty of God, number one. We we're faithful to the absolute truth of God, number two. But we also we think through ways we can make the gospel understandable to those who may not be familiar with it. We, we, we answer their questions. We cite the scriptures. We do all sorts of things to try to help them understand the gospel. And then lastly, the gospel must be understood as a free invitation to the entire world. God is sovereign over who will be saved. We are responsible to take the gospel to all the ends of the world because of God's sovereignty. 
It's because God has, from before the foundation of the world, given a people for the Son to redeem, that we as the church go forth and we proclaim the gospel with confidence, knowing that the appointed time, every person whom God chose in Christ from eternity past will be saved at the appointed time, at the perfect moment in time in history. So when you share the gospel with others, when our church preaches the gospel, we can have comfort in knowing that if we're faithful to the message and we share the gospel far and wide, God will save everyone whom he desires as he desires and when he desires. And I hope that's an encouragement to you and to our churches as we consider salvation and God's work therein. Any thoughts or questions on anything regarding our sermon or sermon lesson tonight discussion tonight um anything that you've been wrestling with that wasn't discussed that you'd like to ask about before we close in prayer i know this is a lot but guys this this is so rare in our day to have a group of believers sit around a table and talk about an ancient book we live in a day where the church is ran and and driven by programs decision-making, money-making schemes, appealing to the secular culture, talking about self-help and improvement programs to make you a better husband, father, businessman, so on and so forth. That's not what we're doing here, guys. We're talking about truth. And I want this to always be a place where you can come with your questions and share what you're wrestling with as you go to the Scripture. So I I hope you guys feel comfortable. If you don't have any questions tonight, that's fine. But always know this, this is a context where we go to the Scripture and we see what God would have us to learn from the Scripture. That's where we're going to be defined by in this Bible study group. Well, I don't see anybody uh, jumping at the bit to uh, ask a question here. So let me pray. Um, Just a few housekeeping items. I will not be here next week. Uh, my wife and I will be going to Louisville, Kentucky for a week for my uh, seminar at Southern Seminary. But we'll be here the following week ready to pick up in uh, John 4. We encourage you to just do the questions beforehand just so you guys are ready for that discussion. And hopefully God will continue to bless our lessons through this gospel account. I know I've had a blast getting to discuss these truths with you. So let me pray and uh, be looking forward to our next gathering in a couple of weeks. Father, we're overwhelmed with these rich theological truths that we've considered tonight. This idea of being born from above, being regenerated, having our spiritually dead hearts transformed to hearts of flesh, to being made spiritually alive so that we can respond in faith to the gospel. And Lord, seeing your grace manifested to Nicodemus and bringing him to faith, as he sought after divine truth, seeing your work in and through John the Baptist, as he recognized that his role and purpose as the forerunner to the Messiah was not about him and and building a platform, but about pointing others to Christ. Lord, as we consider your grace in each of those instances, all we can do, Father, is, is bow before you in humility. I pray that would be our heart right now, before your throne as we close in prayer, that we would be humbled by your grace, your sovereignty, your power, your righteousness, that you never make a mistake, that you always accomplish your purposes. 
And God, that you've promised that for every person who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Oh God, would we take that truth to all of our family members, our friends, our co-workers? Would we share this truth week in and week out from the pulpit of our local churches? Would our lives be shaped by the reality of your amazing sovereign grace so that as we saw described in Ezekiel 36, that we would walk in obedience to your statutes. Father, that we would be your salt and light as you've called us to be, that we would be your ambassadors, that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would also grow in the application of that knowledge, that as individuals in a church, we would be marked by the truth that we profess to believe intellectually. Father, I pray now for anyone here tonight that doesn't know you or for anyone listening that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would use all that we've discussed to open their eyes to their desperate need of forgiveness. Father, that they would recognize that apart from Christ, they reside under your wrath as a sinful man or woman, and that apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ, they will spend eternity in everlasting hell, bearing your wrath forever and ever and ever. Oh God, would that cause them to flee to your kindness, to your mercy, to your grace, to your love that is found in infinite measure in Christ. And for those of us who do know you through Christ, would we celebrate your grace all the days of our lives. And lastly, God, before we close, I want to do, I do want to lift up the McKinney family just with that horrific news that Bell and I heard today. We entrust Eli's soul to your care. And Father, we hope and pray that this tragedy would be used to magnify your character and to save those whom don't know you through the funeral and through conversations that occur before and after the funeral. Would you bring about good from this horrific event as we know is your pattern to do? For what man means for evil, you mean for good. And though we can't fully wrap our minds around how a world cursed with sin and evil and wickedness brings ultimate glory to you, Father, we know that we can trust your character and we know we can trust your purposes. Help us to do just that all the days of our lives. I now pray, Father, you'd keep us safe as we depart from this place. For those who want to stay after in fellowship, I pray you would bless their fellowship that this would be a church that continues to grow in our unity and our love for one another as we grow all the more deeply in our love for you. And as we, as we work to bring this week to a conclusion with the Lord's Day, just a few days away now, God, prepare our hearts for that sacred assembly, the culmination and the climax of every week, that you would be glorified through our worship of you. May it be done in spirit and in truth. And until then, may we be faithful where you've called us to be in the days to come. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.